We've been moving through the book of Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 34. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 28. Our New Testament complementary passage is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. So if you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, hear God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 10, and continuing in the reading of God's word. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Before, Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillows, pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in the month of Aviv you came out from Egypt. All that opens the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of the ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. 
the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for it's accordance with for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the hearing of your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. I think if there's a uniquely American version of Christianity, it's summed up in the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It's the idea that you and I should do the best we can and let God make up the difference. It's the idea that if we just try a little harder, if we, if we just focus a little more, if we strive a little harder, then we'll be better than we were yesterday. And I wonder how that American gospel brings comfort when your best just isn't good enough. When you you honestly have given your best, as a father, you've diligently tried from the heart to shepherd your family and your children are wayward. As a mother... You've diligently, with all the imperfections, tried your level best to be a helpmeet to your mate. And he turns out to be a boor. As a child, when everything you're doing just doesn't seem good enough, when you're trying your best and you're trying your best and it just doesn't go anywhere, We reach that place of incapacity where physically we just can't do it. Emotionally, we just can't do it. Our best is not enough. I think that's where the American gospel falls flat. Because do your best is really a burden. I On my best days, maybe I do my best. (laughs) But in all honesty, in all honesty, most of the time, I'm clocking in at 70%. (laughs) Most of my time, there's a bit of a punch in the clock. And if I'm supposed to do my best, and God's going to help me if I help myself, and if that's my only hope, then the American gospel, quote-unquote, becomes a burden. See, the children of Israel have found themselves in this situation. They found themselves in a place where they clearly have been brought out of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched hand. They found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Moses and Joshua have been gone for 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. They have no idea what happened to them, so they approach Aaron and they say, we don't know what happened to these guys. They've been gone over a month and we're frightened. We feel alone and abandoned. 
make for us gods. And of course, the golden calf, God comes down, wreaks vengeance on them. Everybody has to drink the tainted water. 3,000 men are slaughtered that day. And he sends a plague. Now surely, after all of that, God's satisfied, right? No. No, He is not, because He's never dealt with the issue of their wickedness. His vengeance has been shown. His inability to tolerate evil and wickedness has been shown. But throughout, He's continuing to say to Moses, listen... These people I'm done with, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll make a great nation out of you. I'm finished with these people. They are a stiff-necked, rebellious people. And if I am in their midst, I will consume them in a second. And Moses continues to come back at God and say, God, these are your people. They're not my people, they're your people. You led them out. And so now we come... As Moses has come down, he's broken the tablets. He's, God has called him to make new tablets, and he's meeting with him here on the mountain. God says to Moses, I'm going to renew the covenant. And this same covenant that we've been looking at, really from chapters 18 up through chapter 34, did you notice there's nothing new here? In, in all of the, the details of this covenant that God makes, He's not adding anything new. All of this we've already seen. But he does add one little detail. He says, it's got to be done perfectly. Every single thing you do has to be done perfectly. The children of Israel have committed adultery. That marriage covenant that God made with them in Exodus chapter 20. That marriage covenant has been broken. They've committed adultery by going after the golden calf. And God in his mercy says, okay, I'm going to take you back. I'm going to renew the covenant. And it's interesting, there are three components to this renewed covenant. In verses 11 through 17... There is this absolute prohibition against idolatry. And I like verse 11. It's like, (laughs) just in case you don't understand what I mean when I say don't have other gods before me, verse 11 says, don't make any cast metal images. So the children of Israel could go, oh, We didn't realize the golden calf was such a problem. We thought this was a representation of you. You know, we didn't think it was a violation of the first commandment. God's being very specific here. The absolute prohibition of idolatry. Verses 18 through 20 is this central position, this this central position that the Passover feast is to take. Of all the things that that are to take place, in religious worship, this Passover feast and the, and the ransoming of the first thing, animal or human, to come out of the womb. The first thing belongs to God. What's that calling us back to? It's calling us back to the angel of death. 
The angel of death sweeps over and kills the firstborn of the Egyptian man and beast. And God says, in the same way, I demand the firstborn. Not, of course, in some sort of grotesque human sacrifice. But the firstborn belongs to me and shall be ransomed. This identity as a people that belong to God, but belong to God in kind of a scary way. Belong to God not in the context of some lovable, gentle God, but kind of a frightening God. And then the third component of these laws that are given here, the Sabbath and the feast days, verses 21 through 26. And God's command that their lives, weekly and annually, be absolutely centered upon Him and centered upon His worship. Our catechism says that when God created man, He created a male and female. And He set before Him a covenant. A covenant of personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. He said to Adam, and He said to Eve, you personally have to obey Me. You perfectly have to obey me. And you always have to obey me. There is no do your best. There is no, I'm going to help you if you help yourself. There's, can you be perfect? Of course, the answer is, well, they could have. But, (laughs) but, And ever since then, when you and I are faced with that challenge, you and I are not. I I love to see things like figure skating. I love to see people at the peak of something that they are passionate for. Musicians, sports, athletes. I love to see people who are being excellent. And it doesn't matter whether I can do it or not. I mean, I I love art. You promise you do not want to see anything that I ever draw or paint. But I love art. I love really good art because I appreciate that someone can approach excellence in such a way. Excellence is something that I think speaks to all of us and we admire and respect. But have you ever seen absolute perfection? And I would argue, yeah, probably not. Uh, Michael Jordan, maybe, in basketball, I think is probably the closest that any human being has ever come to perfection in that game. And I'm pretty confident that his shot-made-to-shot-miss ratio is not 100%. He missed quite a few of them. He wasn't perfect. And that's the standard that God reiterates here. He doesn't back down an inch. The children of Israel have committed idolatry. He has punished them. And then he turns around and he says back to them, I'm going to take you back in. And in order for me to take you back in, you must be perfect. God doesn't lower his standard one iota. 
He doesn't lower himself at all to match their inability, to match their inadequacy. But what he does do, what he does do is he not only renews this covenant, but he introduces the idea of a covenant mediator. You see, God is holy, and the people have clearly demonstrated that they are not holy. And so there must be someone. There must be someone who will stand between God and these people. And so you'll notice in this passage, and this is the first time that we've heard this kind of language. In verse 10, God says, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels. Who's the you? This is Moses. He's saying the children of Israel are Moses' people. Before your people, Moses, I'm going to do all these things. And then if you look down at verse 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. God cannot enter into an unmediated relationship with people who are sinners. The children of Israel have shown themselves to be sinners. They have shown themselves to be adulterers. And so there must be someone who will stand between. That direct relationship has been broken between God's standard and your sin. There has to be something. It's either that or God ceases being God. God is either holy or He is not. He is either without sin or He is not. He is either perfect or He is not God. And so for God to enter into a relationship with a broken sinful, messed up person like you. (laughs) A broken, sinful, messed up person like me. I need something a lot better than do your best. God sets a mediator here. He makes this covenant between Moses and Israel. God says through Moses, you are to be perfect. Now remember where all this passage comes. Remember remember where this is coming up in our narrative. We've had all these laws about the tabernacle, what the tabernacle is about, and we're about to see the tabernacle get built, but in between what the tabernacle should look like and let's actually start building the thing, in between these two is the golden calf and these incidents here. Because, beloved, God's word to you, God's word to you is be perfect. The blood sprinkled says be forgiven. That's the tabernacle. The people have to realize how badly they need the tabernacle. Or else the tabernacle is just going to become another way to appease an angry God. 
They need to personally understand their need for this tabernacle, this recreation of the Garden of Eden, this place where we are back in perfect fellowship with God, where the, the place where the mercy seat is right at the center and coming back in, we must come through the altar. We must come through the sprinkled blood. We must come through the death of an innocent because we are guilty. And to come back into God's presence and to be in harmony with Him once more. To be back in the Garden of Eden where we want to be again requires a death. And beloved, as you and I stand in the shoes of the children of Israel, so I want you to hear that that sprinkled blood, that death, The death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is that life. It's the reason that you and I can truly have peace with God. We are about to celebrate the Incarnation. And it's a worldwide celebration. How much of that is... I'll, I'll let you figure out. How much of that is is truly celebrating the Incarnation and what other things are being celebrated? Bottom line, the reason that we have a holiday season is because we remember that Jesus Christ was born. That the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, humbled himself and became a servant lived a perfect life and marched gloriously and boldly and in a terrible way, joyfully up to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, the writer to the Hebrews says, he endured the suffering, even the suffering on the cross. The joy that was in his eyes as he stumbled broken up to that cross was the joy of knowing that he was purchasing a bride. That he was securing your salvation. That his blood was the last that would ever need to be shed. There's much that's said this time of year about the Prince of Peace. Beloved, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Absolutely. But our problem is that we think that the peace is the peace of the Pax Americana, of the Pax Romana or whatever else. Whatever false peace and temporary peace there may be. Paul's pretty clear in Ephesians. He says he himself is our peace. In what way? He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between me and an avenging, angry, holy God. He's broken down that wall of hostility between me and God, and he's broken down that wall of hostility between me and my fellow man. So that we are no longer Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, male or female, but we are one in Christ. And he's making of us all a new humanity. A new creation, a new bride. And beloved, he does so because this mediator, Moses, isn't 
the one you and I need. That's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews said. That's why we read that passage in Hebrews. Because all of this glory, all of this beauty, all of this... And and I've said before, I think Exodus is the most clear presentation of the gospel message in the Old Testament. It is the gospel on display. But it's the gospel on display by pointing us to Moses and saying, you don't want this, buddy. This is not where you need to be. Because this whole scene is terrifying. This whole scene is thunder and cloud and darkness. But you and I, the writer of the Hebrews says, have come to Mount Zion to joy. Did you hear all that language of of joy and celebration? The innumerable angels, festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel's. Beloved, that is where you and I are. That is where you and I can have peace and joy. I want to ask you, let's make this very personal. Let's make this very direct. If you and I truly comprehended this, if you and I truly understood down to our DNA what it means that we are at peace with God, what it means that Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand and is the perfect high priest for you, how do you think it would impact you and me when we hit that valley where our best isn't enough? How do you think it would impact when, when emotionally, we're at the end of our rope. When physically, we just can't take another step. In that relationship, when it looks so broken that there's no way it can be restored. In all of those things that in life we will give up on. An addiction, a broken relationship, all of those things where life hits us upside the head with a two-by-four. If we understood, if we understood this truth, what would it change in us? Do you think maybe we would have a lot more confidence? Do you think maybe we'd have love and joy and peace and patience gentleness, do you think maybe there would be kind of a, an aroma of a Christian? Like, like people might say it's a sweet-smelling aroma. That there's something about this child of God and the way that they speak, the way that they act, the way that we move, that makes others want that. 
attracts others to it. I think we all know that's where we should be. I think we all know that's what we're supposed to be doing. But beloved, I want, to he- I want you to hear me really, really carefully here. I'm not telling you, try harder. That's the whole point. <laughs> try harder is not in the gospel. Try harder is not in the scripture. I'm not telling you, try harder. Beat yourself up because you don't have enough faith. Beat yourself up because you're not loving. Look as an example and be more loving next week. Uh Uh-uh. I'm telling you to look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm telling you to consider where you are in Christ. To consider what it means that your life is hid with Christ in God. What the implications of that are. Because I think, beloved, and we'll see this in coming weeks, that our face, as Moses' face shone, our face shines as the love of Christ is reflected in us, as the Spirit of Christ is reflected in us, it does produce a sweet-smelling aroma. And what Moses did to gin up that glowing face that he had to pull a veil over that we'll see in the next passage, what Moses did to gin that up was just to sit with God, just to listen to Him. That's why God gives us a table. That's why the Lord gives us this table so that we can sit. We can listen to it. We can feed on it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink you all of it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. You remember where you are. You remember in whose hands you are. You remember where your life is hidden. And you remember that the story's not over, that he is coming again. Beloved, I think if we are standing under Moses, then we are standing under the old covenant and hoping for Jesus to help us do better. But Jesus told his disciples, he said, you need to stay right where you are. My resurrection isn't enough. You need to say exactly where you are until Pentecost, until the Jewish feast of Shavuot. Until Pentecost, you need to stay right where you are because you need the Holy Spirit. Paul will tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. Those are the things. 
that we don't find when we're trying to follow all the rules or hold someone else up to that standard. The things that we find when we are in Christ are broken sinners, broken bread, and healing in our relationship with God. 